Okay. Hey, Sula. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm really well, actually. I, I've had a great day, and I said this only on a podcast the other day. I don't suffer with that seasonal affective disorder, but I definitely survive better in the sunshine. I think yeah. I'm part reptile. I just don't do the cold and miserable weather too well. Yeah, same, same. How's your day been? Because I, I want to get to, I was going to ask about your day, but I was going to ask to the point of, talk to me about dishevelled. Dishevelled. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the reference, by the way, to anyone listening right now is that you use that to sum up your your morning this morning, I saw on your Instagram stories. Yeah. Um you know when you've just been away and um like all your routines disrupted and then you come back and you're like trying to get your head into it and like yeah you're not quite there and I feel like I've not put on makeup for the last week or something and you know I washed my hair and I didn't do anything with it so it's just like big and so physically emotionally cognitively I just feel disheveled everything's like everywhere (laughs) you had a nice break though yeah it was lovely we went um to Sardinia but we went with two of our friends who are um based in the US so it was some really good quality time but it's definitely a different break when you're um with like well their parents as well so we had their beautiful little two-year-old but it's definitely a different sort of pace (laughs) a lot of different rest and relaxation right right (laughs) thank you so much for coming on i'm going to say that in advance i'm going to say that many times i really appreciate you appreciate your work and also apart from your amazing posts i feel like you probably don't get enough credit for those amazing accompanying illustrations you do they don't they are done by you aren't they yeah i do do them yeah credit for those i feel because I, I must admit i looked at them at first and i thought that might be something that you outsourced and then i, I caught something and i thought no Suda actually does those herself yeah i do them it was like a little habit i picked up during lockdown because i used to use canva um and so if you go like far enough back on my timeline you'll see like the posts evolve as i because um i think during lockdown was when uh, my husband got his iPad, or maybe he had it before, but then he got this app called Procreate. And so I just doodle on there. And then I was like, oh, I can make some posts on here, actually. And then um, and then I started kind of refining it a bit. And now I've tried to simplify it as well, because I could spend hours just making like one, because I'm not particularly naturally talented um, at this. So it's definitely it doesn't come easy. But um, and also I try and make really complex subjects into some kind of visual representation and there's a you can either go super literal which always feels like a letdown or you can go super abstract which no one gets and I think (laughs) that's why I don't get very much credit because the algorithm's like what the hell (laughs) I don't think anyone understands the algorithm I think there are are certain things we know to appease the algorithm god tends to be (laughs) Less clothing, like polarized titles, sensationalism. Yeah. They love that stuff, but I don't think anyone else knows what how it works apart from that. No. We're definitely going to get on to what you do because I know internal family systems or something specifically I really wanted to chat to you about because I know oh. you did a bit of training in that. And also I'm going to try not to butcher it, EMDR. So eye movement yeah. and reprocessing. I didn't butch that, did I? That was that was that was right. No, you didn't. Reading that, yeah. And I played it cool by not saying that out loud as well. So we'll we'll definitely go over those. <laughs> I'm not going to make you go over what um 
uh, health psychologist does but i'm going to ask you if you don't mind where did your interest come into it because i remember we've had a conversation and it was law law is that's what i have yeah well yeah law originally what what took you from law to health psychology so i mean law was a mistake law was like a piece of bad advice basically so at a level i did four subjects and what and I always knew I was either going to study law or psychology at university. Um, And I was probably most interested in psychology. And the aspect of law that I was interested in was more like, you know, criminal justice. And um, I don't even know. Now it just seems so alien to me that 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 really interested me. But I think probably because my dad's a forensic psychiatrist. So he was always kind of advocating for people who were like mentally ill and being persecuted by the legal system. So maybe that was a bit of it um, more subconsciously. Anyway, um, he had a um, girlfriend, very, very ex-girlfriend who... Um, her preoccupation was definitely money Um, so she was like definitely do law don't do psychology it's oversubscribed it's very competitive and you make so much more money with law so um, being the impressionable I think she told me that when I was like 14 or 15 um, that was something that I really took to heart and then when I went to do law it was so dull it's so dull you have to learn so many things and they're all so dull, like pretty much all of them are really dull, apart from like the criminal things. But then what I, I learned out, uh, <laughs> learned quite quickly in the first year was like, that's the worst paying part of law to go into. Um, so the whole degree is basically geared up to make you a solicitor for some kind of corporate thing, which I have no interest in. And like, I'm, you know, yeah, it's never been something that interests me. Um so so much pressure on and then there was pardon sorry to interrupt you i was just thinking because there's so much pressure on on kind of children to make a decision what they're going to do for the foreseeable app you're talking like 14 when you make your options is yeah. it because i think i did i did 14. business studies because i just had no idea what to do but what would look maybe good on a cv yet you're supposed to decide then what you're going to do for the rest of your life yeah you really do set it up so early because 14 you're choosing your gcse's and I guess you still got some flexibility after GCSEs, but soon after GCSEs, you're so you're about 16 then. And during that year of being 16, you're choosing your A-levels or if you're not going to do A-levels. And of course, you can go back, but nobody likes to do that. Um, so it is a lot of pressure. And then your A-levels are super drilled down to, I think generally it's three subjects rather than four, depending on where you are, what kind of school you're in and whatnot. And then so you're even more super drilled down because depending on that, like you could have a change of heart, want to do something in the sciences and you can't because you chose film and English and something else. So, Mm. yeah, it's a lot of pressure. When you're finding your own way, I don't think anyone knows who they are in their teenage years anyway. (laughs) Sorry, I interrupted you. No, yeah, it's it's a good point. I I think about that because my niece is 16 and she's doing her GCSEs currently and I'm trying to positively influence her towards psychology <laughs> <laughs> and the cycle um, continues <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, but yeah so then first year of law hated it and I realized like by the December of the, the first term that I wasn't going to carry on um and that I'd do psychology instead but 
they had a weird thing where they was like, you, you can do that, but you'll have to start from like the first year of psychology, which I was fine about because I was like another year in uni is like a bonus. But um, you have to finish your year doing law. So you have to pass your your full year doing law. So I had to do a full year of the law degree. Um, but yeah, that was fine. But then it was it was then in my first year of psychology, we had um, a module which was health psychology. We had a really charismatic, engaging lecturer and the subject was just super fascinating. Um, so I was, I was really, really interested in that. And my dissertation was something broadly in kind of the mix between health psychology and social psychology, which I find really interesting. And then again, the pressure of like, going out into the world and making money and working I then went on to work as a marketing manager because I've been working as a marketing assistant I was trying to claw like how psychology relevant into yeah ways that I could find to um, earn a living in some way shape or form and then I realized that I hated marketing also not hated marketing hated the job and it wasn't like my full-time passion I do still find it very interesting but uh yeah it wasn't stimulated and it wasn't really what I wanted to do and that's when I started to get in um physical health issues and having you know a lot of experiences that my clients now get with trying to deal with the medical profession and systems really and um having the the knock-on impact of how you're treated at work when you're ill and you know you lose friends and you feel isolated so all of this happened and I was lucky because my dad was doing a master's in mindfulness at the time and he suggested that I did some mindfulness which you know I always say I was so annoyed because it just felt like such a it didn't feel like it had any relevance you know I had such a physical health issue like I was getting um cystitis which is like water infection so the, the symptoms are so like profoundly physical you you go to the toilet you can't pass any urine but you feel like you really have to go so it I honestly think it's some form of torture to just feel nothing but the urge to wait and not be able to do it and then the pain comes but it was happening all of the time and then I started getting migraines so initially I was really annoyed that he suggested something psychological but then fortunately he had a different partner by this time, this was many years later, and she's um, a, a clinical psychologist, but her specialism was working with people with physical health issues and chronic pain. And she really concisely and clearly explained why that would be beneficial. She was telling me what my um, nervous system was doing when I'm having all of these physical symptoms you know how my immune system's being impacted by all of this and how you know when everything feels out of control actually this is one area that we can exert some influence over which will have a knock-on effect on your physiology and that appealed because I had absolutely no control and was feeling miserable so it's like a double bonus really so then I started doing some mindfulness and I found it really really did help and I started gradually reclaiming areas of my life like I was able to go back to work um and hastily made a plan to then resign and find something else you know uh but I was fascinated by how that could have such a profound effect on your physiology like it made sense that psychology would have effect on psychology but not physiology 
well it did make sense but it was interesting it's still like this magical area yeah so, um, it's still fairly abstract for quite a lot of people that complex interrelationship between mental and physical because it's you know you think of the mental uh, implications that manifest itself biologically in people with things like burnout stress anxiety and the knock-on physical implications and uh, you know exactly as you were something very physical that had a knock-on impact mentally I don't, I don't like my bias maybe I don't think anyone would be any disagreement but I, I don't really think we can have a health conversation without addressing the two in equal measure but I think probably years gone by it was predominantly as two separate entities yeah, and it still very much is in our healthcare system, really. You know, I often talk about how siloed the healthcare system is just even within its like physical remit. You know, if you've got a gastro problem, you go to gastroenterology. But if you've got um, a gynecological problem, you go to gynecology, despite those organs systems being so close to each other and having a knock on effect often. Um, so there, there'll be some reference to that in the different departments. But there's not necessarily the integration. You have to go to specialist uh, hospitals sometimes to get the integration. So, you know, if patients with endometriosis, for example, they might have um, endo that goes beyond like reproductive organs or it's predominantly in the bowels. And it's so hard for them to get adequate treatment because the healthcare system siloed. So if you think about that, but then, you know, three, more than threefold, thousandfold with mental health, you know, so many stories of people being battered between services. Oh, this is a mental health problem. You go there and then you get put on medication or you get some therapy or whatever. Ideally, you get some therapy, but um, then you're then put back into the healthcare system, which then <laughs> unravels all of that work, maybe mm. um, to make light of it. But yeah, it, it's it's so it's so separated and. That, that's just it culturally and societally as well so then it breeds stigma for the person experiencing the, the physical um, health impact because the sentiment is or oh, if it's psychological it's your fault you're not coping properly or you did this to yourself which is you know so far from the truth but that's that's the only way the message seems to kind of be expressed or communicated. Oh. Yeah, which imposes blame you know mm. ultimately people internalizing those sentences of failure so I gather from a clinical perspective would it be most people come to you essentially to equip that toolbox into how to obviously with their whatever medical intervention they're having as well but from a psychological tools perspective they work with you to better equip themselves with dealing with those things yeah exactly I, I mean I've got some sub areas of specialism in so I work with people generally with chronic illness I also work with people without chronic illness but people who choose to work with me usually there's some kind of overlap with like physiology so you know burnout chronic stress or um PTSD and trauma because it has such a big impact on you know what's happening in the brain and the body um but yeah you know I worked in the NHS working with a mixed caseload of people with um anxiety depression all those kind of mental health disorders without physical health issues but my subspecialisms or the, the areas that I'm like super interested in and do a lot of research on, it's like gut disorders and um, pelvic and gynecological disorders and bladder disorders. Cause I feel like, A, I'm just super interested. I guess the the bladder and um, gynae stuff is from my own experience, but also th there's such an intuitive link between our psychological experience and those organs. Like we can see really, clearly how those systems are affected 
just even by the stress response, you know, acutely. So never mind like long-term and chronically. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, people will come at different stages and, and for different things. So people with IBS, we might be able to help them massively reduce their symptoms by using various kind of CBT protocols. But people with endometriosis, I mean, can actually help reduce symptoms also, but the, the primary thing might be coping with like flare-ups or, you know, coping with like the um, psychological impact of having to deal with something and all the like uh, different ways that your life is impacted. So um, yes, essentially I'm trying to equip people with ways of understanding their experience and their, and then ways to implement things that will will work. Sure, because I guess there is still quite a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to the workplace and but, but as to what you kind of suggested that without a manager maybe that fully understands what you're experiencing is is kind of poo-pooed a little bit, disregarded yeah. as something less, well, less traumatic for some people without you being too too uh, free with that word is because I, I gather it is for some people. It's, it's quite traumatic what they've experienced over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm always, I'm still always surprised by how not understanding workplaces are because I just think even just from a return on investment front like it makes so much sense that you get an employee that's healthy that can stay in work and that wants to be in work you know as opposed to pushing them to get back when they don't feel ready they're not going to do the work properly or you know yeah um, they're going to burn out quicker you know it just makes no sense but I had so many uh, patients who, who, you know, they get letters from the GP, they get signed off by something else. They'll have had like accidents, actual like car accidents and their employer's still like, no, you have to come back full time, um, but we'll put you on this kind of work instead. Like that's not the same thing. Mm. Yeah. A, a phrase I was introduced to quite recently, it must've been about six months ago. You, you've probably come across it. I imagine well-being washing. So funny mm. enough out the back of a, a health uh, pandemic and health crisis a lot of people have a, a lot of businesses from a I guess almost from a, like a virtue signaling public facing appearance for the sake of optics they talk a lot about the well-being of their employees but actually when it they did a, a study and I'm going to butcher the numbers but proportionately there was a much higher number of the people that were portraying a certain image and the ones that are actually following through with the support mm. with instances of you know I'm feeling overwhelmed I'm feeling burnt out I really need some time off and then saying I oh, will just get you a new computer and little, little things like that basically totally dis disregarding or I need an assistant or I need time off well I can do everything for you apart from those things yeah <laughs> it's like a, a very much a public facing thing for the sake of optics I find with a lot of businesses that I've worked with but something they don't necessarily all follow through with yeah the nhs is a good example wow, <laughs> yeah. so I, I gather like most of it's privately then people come to you or through referral now yeah privately so i used you know i it's been over a year now that i stopped working for the nhs um so now it's all um private either they find me or it's through referrals from doctors and dietitians and physios mm -hmm. I mean, you spoke to spoke of a little bit of the work that you do, and it's not quite a seamless link, but you did mention post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma. Can we talk a little bit about some of the, the techniques that you use, like EMDR, and perhaps then yeah. we can seamlessly move into internal <laughs> finances? I'm so fascinated to hear about that, just because yeah. um, out of the 
therapeutic inter- interventions I've had over the years that was one of the ones that made the most sense to me mm. and actually helped me cultivate a little bit more of a sense of self-compassion which I realized up until that point wasn't really present yeah yeah uh, yeah it would be really interesting to talk about that for the sake of anyone that doesn't know because I, I haven't tried it in the the classical sense I've, I've tried the butterfly hug technique mm-hmm. the EMDR yeah outline what emdr is and what it roughly involves i know obviously there's there's details you can't include yeah so i mean it's a fascinating story about how the the therapy was developed have you heard of it have you heard it i've heard bits and pieces I, you probably know all the little intricate details i've never heard though no i don't have a brain for intricate details but um just it was discovered by accident right there was a psychologist called um francine Francine or Francis? Oh my gosh. I've heard the accident bit. I, I can't remember names though. I'm going <laughs> off you. I'm, I'm, Either Francine or Francis <laughs> Shapira. I think it's Francine. Anyway, she um she was uh walking her dog and she was kind of mulling over some like difficult stuff. And she realized when she was doing it, her eyes were going back and forth, back and forth. And so being the kind of scientific psychologist that she was she was like oh there's something in this so she started then studying the impact of the eye movements left to right left to right or right to left you know just oscillating side to side essentially what impact that had on people's ability to be with distressing um memories and and stuff that they're processing and initial studies were like finding it did enable kind of more of a tolerance of it so it was less overwhelming um but it in itself it wasn't like sufficient to what we now kind of cause process you know it didn't mean that these things were then put to bed and they weren't as um in, yeah impactful on people's kind of functioning and and other things and mood overall so then from there it was like tailored to um all these kind of emdr protocols so the essence of emdr is with a therapist, you work out what the um, what the basis of the difficulty that you're having is. So initially, this was a pr- an approach used for post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's quite clear, you know, that there's a, a big trauma that's happened. That's the target. We're going to process that and we're going to aim then to get rid of, you know, PTSD flashbacks. If you're having nightmares, the extreme avoidance, hypervigilance, all that kind of stuff. That's where it started with the therapy. But and and it was found to be super effective in, yeah, get you know, get essentially getting rid of PTSD. So people don't have those symptoms anymore. And we already had um, trauma focused CBT, which is sh- shown to be really effective for that. But the beauty and being trained in both, the beauty of EMDR is it's often a lot quicker. The gains are a lot quicker, um, but also it seems to be less. Um, I can't say less intense, but intrusive uh, for people, because in trauma focused CBT, although it's it's very effective and I've what you know. I really enjoyed using that. You have to get people to like relive the specific trauma bit by bit and they're telling you out loud. Um, and there's definitely something to that. But in EMDR, especially when it's something like really difficult, you know, where there's issues with consent, if it's been a sexual assault or something like that, or it's been something against somebody's will, 
in trauma-focused CBT, it could feel wrong to try and get someone to go on, tell me what happened next, tell me what happened next, and, sure. and really distressing and overwhelming. And of course, if somebody's too distressed and overwhelmed, they can't carry on with the therapy and then they can't get the benefit. So with the MDR, the beauty is they don't really have to tell you very much. All of the processing's going on in their their own head and they're just reporting in bit by bit. So what the process looks like is you set up the memory you're gonna work on. So if it's a PTSD, it'll be a trauma memory, the, the trauma memory rather. And then you use bilateral stimulation. So that's why it's called eye movement desensitization reprocessing, because it was it began with just the eye movement. So watching a pen being waved right to left or a light or, you know, there's all sorts of fancy tech things now. But essentially all you need to do is have your eyes moving left to right. So the therapist would would um, instigate that and you would follow. And then that bilateral stimulation allows the memory to come up. Um, in a way that your brain is then able to tolerate without too much distress, but it also starts to bring in extra information that it hasn't had an opportunity to bring in. So how I often explain it is that usually when something distressing comes up, a distressing memory or, or concept, we've got these helpful brain shortcuts um, in a lot of sense that help us kind of exit out of there so the emotion comes up maybe before we've even realized it's come up and then our brain's like no we're not going there and it can be super automated so a lot of times we're not aware of it but the difficulty with that is it prevents our brain from then processing at any point something's just locked away and that doesn't mean that it you know with time it heals it just doesn't it stays there in different ways and you know there's different uh cognitive strategies that we then develop to try and manage that so in order not to think about that you know I won't go to I don't know the seaside anymore or you know me and my friends won't talk about this or and then you know your world can get smaller and smaller but your system gets more hyper vigilant so in EMDR your brain's being given that opportunity that front cognitive part of your brain that usually is the one to step in and go not now is kind of occupied with the bilateral stimulation but also the emotion centers um aren't so reactive so in two different ways you're able to kind of have this information in your consciousness um in order for your overall brain i guess to assimilate that information and that can go really really quickly for some people and for some people it takes a bit longer um, and of course the therapist is there to facilitate blocks when they come up um, but that's generally how it works and if it's not ptsd I use it now a lot with people with without PTSD because the principle of PTSD is a really helpful one for us to understand like what happens to our brain when we're traumatized, but there's a whole continuum of trauma and distress. And it's not always, you know, when, when we're in severe risk of danger or harm, you know, that our brain kind of goes into oh shit mode. It can be when our sense of worth is threatened or when we felt completely neglected so the EMDR therapy works in exactly the same way. It's just the setup that's slightly different because we're looking at, okay, what, what's currently causing you difficulty and how can we trace that back to, you know, beliefs that have been generated from difficult events previously? Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's such a valuable point probably to mention there as well is, you know, the work that you do is 
based on your credentials, your experience and ethical practice and everything else. Because I, I see a lot of these Insta therapy sound bites and not that I'm anyone to challenge those, but things like lean into your pain. And I just think it probably should be done with like a, a psychologist. A lot of people are in these like uh, points of avoidance for a good reason. Like our, our brain has this wonderful ability to protect ourselves. If someone needed to lean into something, it would be seeking someone out like you rather than take someone's advice on Instagram with a, a blue tick, maybe. <laughs> Oh, I say blue tick. It doesn't matter anymore. Anyone's got you can buy yeah, blue tick, exactly. can't you? Yeah, it's changed. It's changed. You don't earn it anymore. Yeah, exactly. Have you have you have you used the, the technique yourself in the past? Have you found it helpful? I I'd probably compare it to turning down the dimmer switch. Almost it's that that those presence of those feelings are still there. It's just they're not as heightened when you employ these techniques. I mean, for me. So I used EMDR. If you don't mind me asking, that is, you can no, talk. I don't mind. Um, when I was in the NHS, and it was after, it was after you know we started going back to the office. So it had been like a good, maybe well over a year that I'd been working at home, um, and everything had gotten worse during the pandemic. You know, people's mental health, the work conditions, because you're not getting the, you're not being, the light relief of just seeing colleagues and you know being able to debrief so it was super hard um yeah to, to say the least and um I think like most people now as well have this sense of losing a year of their lives and then also the complication of how do I reintegrate in now like what do I want for my life there just seemed to be much more pressure on that but also you know what you've taken for granted as like meaningful maybe just didn't seem as meaningful it's super destabilized and then as someone who's experienced depression like numerous times throughout my life as a try therapy once which is kind of like a, a funny bad story um or, or yeah let's say once um, and it, it wasn't helpful it was really bad and it really put me off despite the profession that I'm in which is surprising to a lot of people but I was like okay I'm, I am going to do therapy now I've been learning and doing EMDR and I thought this could be helpful um, because the difficulty when you're a therapist and a psychologist which we should all <laughs> be on the lookout for is that you think because you understand and you can formulate yourself that you should shouldn't you're not going to learn anything from therapy which is like such flawed thinking when you say it out loud but you know those are the therapist beliefs anyway I have blind spots <laughs> <laughs> I finally went to therapy um and had EMDR and it made such a huge difference because there were all these things that I've been carrying around for so long and I'd processed in lots of different ways you know like I journal I speak with people I you know do loads of do mindfulness so it's not like I'd been ignoring these issues which I guess is why I thought what what else is therapy going to add to this but um it felt like it just like picked it all up and like put it out like just evaporated it and it wasn't that I didn't feel any more like they weren't justifiable things to be sad and upset about but it just didn't feel like I had to carry them anymore they'd been it was just like a weight being lifted so a lot of the memories that we processed I could go back to them and I feel absolutely like 
nothing emotional at all anymore. Um, and for a while, there were things that had massively like uh, annoyed me, you know, just interactions um, that I would have with certain people that I would be like, right, I need to just like not feel this bad about it. I know where it's coming from, but why do I still get so reactive? And then there was this whole honeymoon period for a good long, like maybe not a year, but not shy, not that far from it, where I was like, it would just slid off me. I was like, oh, whatever. And now, <laughs> yeah, that now I still feel the yerk. There's little niggles. I've got this now. No, I haven't. <laughs> but um but yeah but, but that's I guess you know because it's consistent work isn't it all of these things it's not like you switch something off yeah yeah I, I find that a lot of these things especially what I refer to as like the deeper work a lot of people we, we scratch the surface we think it's one thing it offers it, you know it offers mm. um so much more on a deeper level I think even if you've got a level of self-awareness is as I said like there's always those blind spots so a lot of people think they reach that definitive end, like, oh, I'm just, I'm fixed. Or as Instagram would tell us, I'm healed. Yeah. And um, yeah, it just, it's, it's ongoing stuff, right? And we all have lapses. I, I certainly have, you know, because yeah. we're all um, subject to chaos around us. That's out of our control. And we don't know the impact of that sometimes. Can we talk all about your internal family systems experience? Because I know a little bit from what I've read and what I've I've like put into practice, I guess. But I'd, I'd love to hear about it from a, a practitioner point of view in your training, because you, you took a little bit more of a vested interest. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done the full IFS training, which I definitely want to do, but I've agreed with myself I won't do any more um, training for it. <laughs> You've been quite busy by the sounds of it recently, and I want to hear all about that as well. After. Yeah um yeah I'm I definitely am a compulsive like doer and learner so yeah I just did a one day IFS course but um I'd been using it in my practice because when I get my EMDR supervision um often my supervisor will suggest working with blocks or particular things using parts so I'd started doing some reading around what that whole concept was and how you could do it. And it sounded a bit, sounded intuitive, but it also sounded a bit odd. Um, so I was like, what, mm. what is this that, you know, it's, when like you that. Think... it's ingrained in our language. Cause I, I thought when I was introduced to it and the, the, even the phrasing, oh, you know, there's a part of me, we, we yeah. refer to ourselves in parts often. Exactly. exactly. So very intuitive. But then when my supervisor's there going, you know, it, it really sounds like, um, this part's coming up for that person so maybe you could ask it you know what's it scared of and I'm like when you say ask it what's it scared of like what how does that dialogue like play out and she's like well and then I was like oh well that's odd you know <laughs> it's okay. quite uncomfortable the first couple of times because I think my therapist when I was talking about it asked me to refer to little Dan and I was like I'm not comfortable with this phrasing yeah no one wants to refer to self as little anything but, <laughs> yeah you get your head around yeah referring to yourself in the third person which is my a little bit of a, an ick for me people talking about themselves in the third person sorry that's off topic anyway but yeah it's, it's quite abstract and it feels very uncomfortable because someone is watching you have this dialogue with yourself out loud mm. yeah exactly and a lot of my clients can't do that so I do it slightly differently um and I also let them choose the terminology <laughs> because, because 
because also it's important that you connect with them right the, the parts um and if it doesn't like you know I might say the manager part but this part might just seem really bossy to someone and less like a manager more like a tyrant so then you know yeah anyway there's different ways to try and like connect with those parts but that was what spurred my um tr yeah uh decision to go and do a bit of training and it was it was such a unexpected experience this training because I'd done a lot of reading now and I'd been using it in EMDR training so I've got a lot of the concepts and the beginning part of the training was being introduced to that but then using some experiential exercises to do it and the first one was this exercise where you um have a dialogue with whatever parts are present yeah yeah that's it so th there were some prompts you I think we all closed our eyes and um you're just prompted to have a dialogue with whichever part showing up like how are they feeling you know what do they want you to know blah de blah and then at the end of that moment you then do a bit of artwork that uh illustrates you know what what came up for you and I had the most like lovely experience um of my manager part so in IFS, by the way, probably for context for listeners. So the idea is that there's you yourself, which is like ultimately when you're yourself, you could you're all the the wonderful qualities, right? You're curious, you're calm, you're all the all, all the other C's that are good. Um, but what gets in the way of you kind of being truly yourself in that equilibrium is these parts that have been developed to protect you. So at somewhere along the timeline of your life, probably quite early on, um, you've experienced some distress or something really difficult. And then what's called your exile part is born first. And that like holds all the pain, but because of these brain shortcuts essentially, um, it's pushed down and not acknowledged because that's too painful and we don't wanna to spend too much time with that difficult emotion. And this isn't necessarily a, and generally not a, a conscious thing that we do. It just happens automatically. But in order for us not to feel that horrible emotion ever again, whatever it might be, being scared or being um, sad or alone, we then develop these parts. And so one of those parts is the manager part, whose motto is never again. So whatever you felt never wants to go back there. So it's all about kind of being proactive in avoiding that. And then there's the firefighter part, which is the um like get get you out of here quick part so whenever that feeling starts to come up its job is just to get you out of there quickly and so we can already see that there's going to be tricky dynamics because the firefighter part is going to be at odds with the manager the manager is going to be at odds with the exile it all gets very complicated but the i what i really liked about ifs is that the premise is that these parts are just there to protect you they've got their quirks and they might not always be helpful but they were born out of you know extreme pain and trying to prevent that from happening. Um, so I was having this lovely experience of my manager part of myself having this dialogue and I was seeing all these lovely colors of them coming together. And at the time I was super busy, <laughs> um, yeah, super busy. And my 
self was saying to my manager, you know, I so appreciate all that you do. You know, you get so much stuff done. We've been so productive. Like we've got so much to show for it, but you know that you like take it too far, right? And the manager probably say, yeah, I do take it too far. And I'm sorry, like, we, we can we can chill out we can find like a middle ground like and then there was this this lovely little interaction and then just below this kind of lovely meeting of these two parts was <clears throat> more of like a, a gray purpley area which was like my um exile and my firefighter part who weren't really online like they were just like there but not um they didn't really have much to say so I felt moved to tears by this, which never happens. Like I do all these therapy trainings and I, I never feel like particularly emotionally affected um, where I've had like cohorts of colleagues where they've cried up certain things and I've, always, I've never connected in that way. But this, I was like, oh, wow, I feel like really moved. And that, um, I unmuted in front of like hundreds of therapists to like, you know, prompted, not just <laughs> out of the blue to, to tell them how lovely it had been. So I was like, yeah, this makes total sense to me now, like how you could have a dialogue with these parts and how it can give you that compassion and, you know, find these habits and work them out a little bit. The second half of the training, I was like, this is going to be so lovely. Um, we got put in uh, a group, um, like a couple with another therapist that was learning on the day as well. And we were given the instruction and the instruction was, you simply wanted to find out more about what the manager part was concerned about. So I was like, easy, we've just had a lovely conversation. This is gonna be so nice, let's chat some more. Um, so the, the therapist that <laughs> was um, uh, facilitating th this dialogue for me, did, definitely didn't know what was, gonna, what was gonna happen and neither did I, um, but she had this like, you know, argument um, with her manager, like, you're always asking for too much and then there's like the firefight firefighter that was you know completely burnt out and she had her own experience and then came on to me and I was like okay yeah let's let's do it and um it just started really quickly where it's like so what is it that you're concerned about and then it was so interesting because I just felt this like kind of oh shit <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I want to know this <laughs> moment and then she kept going which was the task like asking me questions and the more the more she asked the more clarity I was getting but also the more emotional I was getting so I was in floods of tears which never happens when I'm doing these trainings so I was like <laughs> I'm sorry I don't usually get like this <laughs> I'm not one of those people, whoever those people are, you know, um, and she's like, it's okay, you know, this is obviously like something that needs to process. Um, but it, but it, it caused this huge revelation, which was like, which I'd been vaguely aware of that, you know, a lot of the reason that I push forward so much is because I'm worried about like stability, you know, things could just go away. But I never really connected with that idea massively because I didn't have a hugely, um, at least, you know, financially unstable upbringing. And, you know, as far as things go, I don't know, like, again, cognitively as an adult, I would represent it as, you know, fairly balanced in, in that regard. But for some reason, I've got this deep seated fear that 
everything will suddenly go away. And um, there was a particular concern around this. So, you know, being a um, 30, how old am I? 34 year old woman, not having had kids yet, biological clock is everywhere, you know, on social media, on all, and I work in women's health a lot. So yeah, all of that was coming up about, well, when are we gonna have kids? Um, and if, you know, if you don't get things more stable, then it's gonna be, you know, when the window even reduces and blah, 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 blah. So anyway, um, this was something, what was really interesting was this was something that multiple times I checked in with myself about this and it's not, it's not been something that I've avoided. Like I've had conversations with my husband, we've talked about it, we've calculated stuff, but um, suddenly like the emotion of it all came up and it was just, I could appreciate this huge pressure that my manager part had been under for so long um, whilst trying to simultaneously like push down this deep seated fear that you might never have kids. Um, so yeah, it was this really moving revelatory experience, uh, which I had not expected to come just from like a little training exercise. So I was very convinced by the power of this and just getting getting you to switch into a different mode that usually you might have defenses up. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, by the way. I, you know, yeah. I wasn't gonna press any of that point because as I said, my first experience with it was just developing this sense of compassion because I think for such a long time is those parts we're maybe ashamed of or the or exiles that we've shunned to one side is we treat ourselves like we need to rid ourselves of them, like yeah. they are defective, they are unlovable, we need to to do away with them without recognising, you know, I guess this is the self-compassion bit for me, is that they served a purpose at some point, like that was there for a reason. Whether I was aware of it or not, that served a purpose in terms of protecting me. So... Yeah, with all these things, and we do naturally, I think in our brains, it offer, it operates on such a sinister level of self-deception is we're totally unaware of it until we shine a light on it. And it's often with things like IFS that things just fall into place and make sense because it, you know, we stick a lot of the things in the back of our subconscious under rocks for a good reason sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And it really helped me appreciate, like you're saying, you know, those blind spots you you I don't think it really shone a light on how many of them not how many but just how or automatically and organically they happen for us and like you say super beneficial you know in lots of respects but also um it means that the work's never really done and we don't want it to be done like life's a constant evolution of all different things circumstances what's going on internally priorities whatever um so we don't have to delve into like a dark box to fix or to find the trauma, but providing the opportunity to really check in so that you know that you are on the same page as yourself. Cause actually a lot of the time we cannot be and not know it. Yeah. I found for mine, a lot of worth is sought out in being productive. Mm -hmm. And I never, I never bought into that classic male archetype as in terms of my own thinking, because, you know, my mum brought me up on her own, more or less. So I never thought I was a, a classic male archetype in that. And I think that that taps into a lot of, and not without distinctly making this a male thing, but these classic type provider, protector archetype, mm. 
So sometimes when things, for me especially, I could only make reference to myself, is when things feel out of control, I feel like I'm failing some primitive duty, mm. which attacks my sense of self and my sense of self-worth. So I go into this hyper-chaotic, like productive, must be doing everything, spinning all these plates things. And that, again, that that was the the first thing that made sense for me. So if, if anyone would reference that, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, I think I might mispronounce it, Richard Schwartz. 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 Is it Schwartz? See, last time I said Schwartz, I was told, no, that's you've got to pronounce really? it in the German way. Maybe. I don't know. I yeah, Richard. I just he? did a bit of training and I'm yeah. sure well, I've just embarrassed myself, haven't I, in very publicly. <laughs> but it's okay. Uh, and his book is No Bad Part. So I was introduced to it by my therapist. I know we've had chats in private about it, but that book really helped me piece things together. And that, mm-hmm. that lists all the tools in there and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing those bits. I, I, it's not something I, I try to press on people, but just I think it's quite interesting if you if you're looking at that deeper work on yourself, because again, it, it's so deceptive. Is you need other people to highlight things for you sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. or bring your awareness to it at least. Yeah, because sometimes it's because also I think you know I've been talking a bit about expectations of therapy when people come, they think that commonly they hold a uh, conscious or unconscious belief that we'll talk about things they'll get the information and then they'll feel better but sometimes it's not sometimes most of the time there can be light bulb moments but it's more about the drip 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 of like hearing the same thing in different ways and trying it out in different ways that's how we learn and that's how we make changes and I think if you we can start at very surface level, just like identifying, oh, I think I've got a manager part. It doesn't mean that we then have to go and like root around for our exile, you know? Mm. I think a lot of people, uh, and I don't want to say part of my problem with that strength in speaking narrative is kind of just speaking is not enough. And I, I found even with the talk therapy that I've done is talk therapy, depending on obviously what you're, you're dealing with, that can only get you so far sometimes, which is why these other tools and these practices are really helpful. Yeah, because... I mean, in order to really make change, you it takes action, really. Mm. It takes like em- embodiment and um, that's the hard part. Uh, yeah. And that could be an uncomfortable discovery when people come to therapy as well. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually a really interesting point. I hadn't thought to bring up with you, but that, em- that embodiment of practice. And I suspect the reason why people find things like mindfulness and meditation so difficult is because they become so disembodied they're mm. not attuned with their body anymore so actually it, the thought of sitting there with their their feelings and their thoughts around things is quite an uncomfortable thing to get their head around I was just talking I can't remember who with now but about this question of have we generally as a society like had our ability to tolerate uncomfortable things reduced not to say like the world's a squeaky clean place and everything's bliss because it obviously isn't but you know everything's so accessible we can like switch on our laptop if we're bored like we've got a, a billion options I definitely agree with that I think I think um we definitely we're not very good at just dealing with boredom mm, mm-hmm. exactly Other- and yet the, the research shows that boredom is so important for mm. the way our brain works and functions and problem solving and all sorts um, 
that brings me to something else because I had to write it down because yeah. it's a reference that you made discomfort aversion defaults because mm-hmm. that, that, that straight away springs to mind doom scrolling on social media and all of these little time fillers that we do because boredom we just can't deal with seemingly yeah whether it's boredom or something else that we haven't identified as what it is like this anxiety like people often think about anxiety as like a real overwhelming panic or like worry but anxiety can just be that like oh I don't like now however you feel that Mm. like a slight discomfort or just wanting to get out of now and so sometimes people don't even identify that as some kind of anxiety but I mean and the label almost doesn't matter so much but it is a uncomfortable emotional experience that you're trying to get out of and sometimes that's fine you know but if that's always the response you're always trying to get out of it that's when it's problematic because then you develop these unhelpful habits that reduce your ability to work through difficult stuff and actually get to the heart of like why these patterns of procrastination happen for example or you know why you end up getting these headaches on an evening all of the time and um I find it quite a lot with emo- things like emotional eating. Mm, yeah, exactly. Like, I can recognise this is unhealthy pattern I'm falling into, but actually the the pain and discomfort that I'm experiencing now, I just need to get rid of it. Like I just yeah. want to do away with this and I don't really know how to. So that, you know, a few people have that diverse toolbox again. It's just this yeah. thing I know can lean on. It brings me some sort of comfort, safety. It soothes me somehow. I might come to regret it, but I do it anyway. And that, I mean, bringing it back to IFS, that's the firefighter, right? That's Mm. the thing that's helping us get out of it straight away. And I think sometimes we can lean into that. Like sometimes that's totally fine. Um, I think emotional eating is something we all do. It's just, it becomes problematic when it's that only tool in the toolbox. You can always reference it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, I'm always wondering like who, probably the people that are reading those posts are the ones that already are aware that they have mm. these discomfort aversion just con- confirmation bias everyone's just scrolling nodding along <laughs> the people that desperately need it will never see it yeah right exactly <laughs> but then yeah it's not I mean it's not something that I'm truly worried about but I I do wonder like what's the pathway between someone being completely unaware of all their uh, discomfort aversion defaults to then slowly starting realizing they have it and then deciding to work on it like I'm super of course that'd be different for everyone but yeah. what pushes them along to then decide to work on it and yeah you're gonna say something no no I'm just thinking about that because I've I haven't described it as eloquently as you in the past, but it's almost, I feel you need a level of self-awareness to become more self-aware. Mm. Like what if you never cultivate that sense of self-awareness in the first yeah, place? Exactly. And I think that's probably why people get into cycles of behavior. They even objectively can't really recognize a destructive, mm. not just to themselves, but others around them as well. I find it quite interesting, this narrative around, oh, you know, this person's a red flag, that person's behavior is a red flag. And <laughs> I can't help but think that if everyone and all the behavior around you is a red flag, then actually it might be closer to home. Yeah. <laughs> but people don't seem to to recognize that one. So, um, yeah, but it's that whole any sort of behavior change, I guess, is, you know, people need to 
want to investigate that further themselves even if you can see objectively from as an outsider they desperately need it is it's that shame that paradoxical effect that just forces them to withdraw and go back to yeah and having nothing to do with you unfortunately yeah exactly it's possible can you tell me a little bit because I'm, I'm hugely conscious of your time actually i didn't even realize it was that late okay. I'm not in a rush. Of your exciting new project, or am I getting ahead of myself? Am I, not, am I allowed to ask? Because I'm going to ask you where people can find <laughs> out more about you anyway. Yeah. Um, so what is it? So the, the idea behind this, because... I've been a total pain in chasing you, and understandably, you're super busy. You're like, just leave me alone, man. No. <laughs> no, I mean, that. Like that's always the way anyway. I'm always like, yeah, next month I'll be freer. And then it never happens. But I am trying to be freer this month. But um, yeah, the, the project. So it's something that I've wanted to do for ages is create a resource bank, essentially, of um, knowledge and tools for people to use in order to... Um, I guess do that work that's like the co constant cultivation right so it's not like a therapy alternative um but it could be like a helpful therapy adjunct or someone after therapy or someone that doesn't feel like they need therapy but they want to like learn a bit more about um themselves and you know managing diff different things that they struggle with whether that's like feeling anxious or whether that's physical symptoms so I've purposefully tried to cultivate it so that it's not just for people with chronic health issues or just for people, you know, with anxiety or depression. I, I want to, I've pulled out the commonalities um, because I think as important as it is to have tailored support, it is also helpful to understand that we are humans with like universal difficulties that can often, we, we tailor them to our own experience, but they all join up together essentially. So, you know, how we believe, um, how we build belief systems, how we manage our discomfort, how we um, interact with other people and seek support or don't seek support. So the programs uh, made into three modules or yeah, three modules, I call it body, which is all about the physiology of what's happening in our body. So we understand like what our brain's doing very broadly speaking um what our nervous system does and how these things underpin both physical health issues but also um like psychological things that come up so you know a common one is uh worrying like if we know what's happening in our brain when we worry then we can work with the worry slightly differently for example if we know what's happening in our nervous system when we experience pain we can respond slightly differently than just kind of despairing and trying to think through the fact that we might be in pain forever so um the body module is kind of like the the foundation for everyone to get a broad understanding of like their physiology and how that impacts mental and physical health and then the the mind module is like the psychological techniques that you can use to bridge the two and then the the social module is all about connection and um, cultivating healthy relationships and um, assertiveness which is a big topic for a lot of my clients but also there's like a community aspect so people working through the program in whatever order they want to do 
can chat with each other. There'll be like discussion threads. And then each week we'll come together for like a, a live workshop where we'll discuss like a particular topic that's been on the, the um, website and doing a practice together and discuss and explore. So the idea is for it to be affordable for people like to keep working. There's not like a get better by this point. Mm. It's just let me explore this. Let me explore like what my thoughts are doing over the next month. And then next month, maybe I'll explore like, I don't know, um, progressive muscle relaxation and how that helps me relax or not, or yeah, whatever I learned from that. That sounds great. Cause I think on a societal level, there is just a, a question of accessibility for a lot of people. They don't have the means to seek out private care. They don't have the means or the time maybe to even visit their GP or get, or they feel they, you know, as you've kind of attested to, they don't get the level of support they would hope. So this gives them some autonomy and some skills and something they can practice at, at home. I think there's such a valuable point you mentioned there. I don't see too much of it. Maybe it's my echo chamber, but that whole just human connection and community being such an important aspect of well-being which isn't really addressed too much we tend to think of it as diet nutrition psychological skills but just being connected with other people is such a primitive important part of our makeup like one of the biggest things but we it's just no attention's paid towards it societally and like structurally you know there was a thing about social prescribing which when they started rolling it out was really really helpful but then I think funding's got cut and now it's kind of changed how they do it and um just even the way our like society's set up you know these little silos that everybody is in whether it's like couple silos or family silos or you know uni friend silos but then that all gets disbanded when you go into the working world and our opportunity for community particularly in in a kind of a busy city like London but then there'll be issues like in remote places is yeah not having that option that accessibility to to be amongst people and I think then it puts an added layer of pressure on socializing because you want to get the most out of the people that you're with but then they don't meet your expectations you don't meet your own expectations um making friends as you get older is is harder because you're you're time restricted people have busy careers they have they may have families they may have social things they do they might go away quite often it's it's not for a want of trying I think for a lot of people it's just the practicality of it yeah exactly the practicality and then when you when there's just not like um a ready-made community there for you to access it just puts such an onus on you to like try mm. and organize and then you feel so alone because you feel like you're the only one that's trying to put the effort in or even if you don't feel like that you just feel alone because practically it's really hard to meet up with people so what I really wanted to make with this body mind connect was like this will be here weekly you know there'll always be someone to talk to on the forum maybe not live but you can all you know you'll always get feedback and there'll always be like a weekly thing so there's a shared kind of collective commitment to oneself and just cultivating nice little connections they don't have to be lifelong intense friendships but it's just mm. nice to like show yeah, up and amazing. have something there yeah. amazing and where can people go if they want to find out a, a few more details about that um good question <laughs> to, to, be, to be confirmed <laughs> yeah probably my instagram page um is the best place because i delayed it slightly with my um trip that's okay i think that's allowed but I would, I would direct people there anyway, obviously, without question. And your Instagram handle is? 
the underscore health underscore psychologist underscore. Amazing. Yeah, nearly as catchy as well. I never thought my handle through when I realized I had to repeat it to other yeah. people. Yeah, they don't they don't they won't know about that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. I yeah. appreciate your valuable time because I know you have much more important things to do. Yeah. So thank you for giving up some of it. I was gonna do the the little head tilt when you were talking, but I thought that might put you off the, the doggy because your beautiful pup keeps springing up in the background. She likes to get a bit of camera time. My I, I always hijack these things with just pup talk because oh, I have to leave. <laughs> She's wagging her tail. Oh bless. What's her name? Maya. Maya I have to leave Daisy in the house because she would just be pouring at my leg and want to cuddle oh, to see who I'm talking to that's yeah. we don't deserve them they're better than people I don't look at her <laughs> I can see I can see that little tail wagging I can I'll let you enjoy the rest of your evening if anyone has listened to this and, and they've found it mildly interesting I think they definitely will but if you could like subscribe maybe give us a rating some valuable and constructive feedback always welcome but yeah thank you once again yeah, thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure.